welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, and we're recording. Dr. Elsie, good morning. How you doing? Oh, good to be with you, Thomas. You prefer Tom or Thomas? Uh, Thomas is good, thanks. Got it. Yeah. I don't know. I had that switch at one point. I, I went by Tom a lot in high school. And then I, one day I kind of just switched it. And I was like, you know what? They named me Thomas. People ask me the same. Mike, Mike, Michael. And <laughs> either one work. The only one is Mikey is my dad calls me that since I was like a kid. So that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you, are you okay with the Mikey or is Mikey a no-go? <laughs> Mikey, Mikey's a no-go. I mean, yeah. unless, unless you're going to pay for my meal. <laughs> awesome, man. Cool. So you are a uh, clinical psychologist, mm-hmm. uh, PhD, and you work with uh, university students and probably a, lot, a few other populations. And yeah, there's definitely a, a ton I want to dive in with you on, especially as it relates to us kind of emerging post-COVID world and you know, what, what happened to us, you know, all that stuff mm-hmm. from, from a professional's perspective, but to bring it back a little bit, you know, who, who is, who is Michael and what brought you to the the mental health field as a, as a profession? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I came to the, the psychology field, not totally by accident. I was inspired by my mom who was a social worker and I had always loved learning about people's stories and, and I found the art, the conversations are sort of an artistic process when you can help someone kind of deepen their story that I think you sort of lose track of time together and, and you come up with these all interesting new connections. And so in college, I took some psychology courses, but it wasn't until I actually worked at a placement with juvenile delinquent boys where I was like, this is for me. Mm -hmm. And it was surprising because I had nothing in common with these guys, but the fact that that we could open up so much territory together, talking often while shooting pool or playing basketball or them playing something on their guitar for me kind of showed me that we all need a space to be heard and a space to be witnessed, especially us guys trying to figure out how to put it all together. And so, so psychology and therapy for me became this place where we could kind of talk about the complicated things in a way that was more interesting and more safe. Beautiful. That's really cool that in all those examples you gave, there is some kind of movement or a creative outlet. And that's something I've kind of picked up from your website and the other interviews you've done is that you definitely seem like you center the the creative connection and the connection between therapy and creativity. So why do you think those two things are importantly important to be matched together? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because I think if 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 when we actually create, we make something, some new connection or a variation on something, or we find and discover, and that's where sort of like the magic happens. It's like we as human beings love mystery, and we also love kind of solving a mystery and then opening up another one. So I think what creativity does, and, and you know, people think of creativity just as like, let's say music or painting or art. But I think creativity is a more broad process of, of like a good joke has creativity to it because all jokes are centered around that surprise. 
wait, I didn't think you were going to go in that direction or, wow, you said what I think, but I don't speak out loud. So there's, <laughs> there's something about creativity that, that really, really opens us up. The other thing about creativity is, is, is it allows us to try out new things in a way that's much, much more safe. So I think for me, creativity was always more at the center of, of therapy and conversation and everything else that we hold near and dear, but we don't really talk about it. You know, we, when we think of creativity, we think of it as, oh, you have a creative job because you're a graphic designer or, or you're an actor or something like that. But we, we don't really link them with this personal creativity. And, you know, our best conversations with our friends or our significant other or, or anybody else for that matter is usually because there's a creative center to it. Like, doesn't it make you say all of a sudden, Tom's like, that makes me think of this. And, oh, I never thought of that, but wow. Absolutely. And even just the word, the word itself implies something new. And I feel that in the context of a personal relationship or say, say with this podcast or as you referenced with these, these young guys figuring out you know, how to orient themselves and relate to the people close to them. Those breakthroughs in personal relationships happen when there is new space discovered, right? A new frontier or this topic that, hey, you know, <laughs> growing up, this thing really affected me. And now I'm an adult, but it's still, it's still here and we need to talk about it, you know, as like an anecdotal example because yeah this the whole to create is to is to bring something new and it makes sense that there would have to be that kind of that bravery to create newness in those personal relationships and you brought up a really good metaphor too thomas of like sort of charting new territory it it sort of makes us feel like explorers of our own psyche right which is like you know (laughs) right like we don't think of like you know going like out west or going to the moon is something that we can visualize and see oh my god that's an explorer doing doing something but if you think about an explorer of the psyche it's like look at how many like places you could discover and some of my favorite moments in therapy as in conversations are when somebody says oh i never quite thought of this but or i never actually said this out loud any any one of those things, or my favorite is, this is going to sound really stupid. I love when people say this is going to sound really stupid, because usually that's when they're allowing themselves to be brilliant. Totally. And what does it say about our culture that so many people associate their brilliance with self-deprecation? You know, it's so funny because I was just reading something uh, that we stop asking all these wonderful questions um, as school children, like even kindergarten, first grade, second grade, we stop asking lots of these wonderful, why does this work the way it does? Or why doesn't this do the thing? And a lot of these questions that are really brilliant, we start to stifle and inhibit because we're told, wait, stay on track. And, you know, wait, no, we're not focusing on that. We're focusing on this. And so I think we sort of um, lose connection to this sort of magic that we all have access to. And I think you're right. I think I think we sometimes overprivilege like a more left brain logical approach like, oh, that's logical. So therefore, it must be smart. But what we forget is the right brain part of us, which is a more dreamlike, associative, emotional, intuitive, metaphorical, funny place Mm. is brilliant. And in the right proportions, it's amazing. And it's an amazing collaborator. I think of like how we're built as this interesting mashup, if you think about it, because like 
we we are such a contradiction. We are logic and and like this linear focus, sequential, along with completely freewheeling, associative, all over the place, emotional, and they're mashed, they're mashed up together. Totally. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think just from a societal perspective, that right brain can be the center of someone's life. You know, there are creative outlets and it doesn't even have to be, you know, being an artist. It can be, you know, I can think of a ton of business scenarios where a creative solution saved the day or a manager who got creative to keep employees motivated, Mm -hmm. you know, drove the team forward to reach its accomplishments. Like I think, yeah, there's, there is this kind of disdain or, or kind of looking down on, creativity in the culture because it's such a you know at least here in the u.s right it's so commercially driven i would say and and commercial aspirations are often associated with very serious you know very serious business here (laughs) it's it's also sort of like objectified and commodified in a way right like to make it seem like unless you're doing something of this kind of value with it you're not really being creative and so then i think we we then minimize or deny our own creative capacities. Like I work at Manhattan School of Music and I work with all these, these musicians and these artists like jazz and classical and, and musical theater and everything. And they know that they're artists when it comes to their music, but they don't think of themselves as artistic personally. Mm. That's pretty amazing that even artists themselves don't think of them, their own personal stuff as creative. Yeah, that's bizarre. It's bizarre, but but it's actually really important because, and you know, it's interesting. It connects to sort of like, you know, we're going to talk, I'm sure, about the challenges of and the complications of being a fully integrated man today. And one of the things is that like, it's the yin yang, the kind of sort of old school masculine feminine bringing them together. That's what Jung said was the integrated human being. And in a way, like right brain and left brain are like yin and yang as well. And we all could do well to make, totally. keep them in nice. complementary balance, right? I love that analogy. You're 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 an analogy master. I, I listen. <laughs> I listen. What was the? I'll, I'll remember it. You used a few in another podcast I listened to, and I was like, "Damn!" Like this. The I guess I'm a visual learner, so it, I'm a visual learner. I, I yeah. see the image, and you know the other thing is you think about it. Analogies are right brain connected with the left brain because they're often image based. And they're often something that we really know it's familiar, but you connect it with something really unfamiliar. And so people don't think that metaphor is metaphor is a way of thinking deeply, right? Some of my, my favorite teachers used great metaphors to explain something as difficult as calculus, right? And so we, we need metaphor. And, and, you know, Robert Frost, the poet said, those who are not educated in the metaphor are not fit to be let loose in the world. <laughs> wow. That, that's how powerful metaphor is because it unites these different things and also finds similarity. Of course, he, he created a metaphor in that itself. Yeah. He's, yeah. Yeah. And, but he always said, you know, <laughs> metaphor can only go so far and then it starts to break down and then you use another one and you keep on using another one and you another one. Amazing. So, so in that build up, you reference this idea of psychological safety and I think that's a term that is good to define. So how would you put it in, in the layperson's term? What, is that, what does that yeah. really mean? 
You know, one, one, one cool way of thinking about it is, is you, you hope that when you're talking to somebody, whether they're a counselor or somebody else, that you feel that there's a level of presence that I'm with you. And I'm also suspending judgment. You know, like when we read a good novel and we sort of suspend disbelief, we should also sort of be with someone who hopefully suspends judgment so that we can open up more into whatever we're thinking or whatever we're feeling. And a good counselor does that. Um, and another, another way of describing what I think is the most safe, but the most creative space, there was a, there was a psychologist named Donald Winnicott. He was a British pediatrician and psychoanalyst. And he's the guy who came up with that term transitional object. You know how like your teddy bear is your transitional object, your blankie is something that you, you know, it's a real object, but it also has its own mythology. It has its own name and its own history and all that kind of stuff. And he felt like transitional object was because it was in a transitional space, meaning it was in the space between fantasy or imagination and reality. And it was that the overlapping in those areas. Mm. He sees transitional space as how we adults form what's called potential space. And potential space is where creativity reigns. Because potential space means I can mix what's happening in reality and in my imagination together and tinker with it. And I think when psychology, when therapy is going well, when good conversation is going well, we feel that there's potential space. In other words, Thomas, I could talk to you, let's say if we were talking in a conversation and I could talk to you about like that something is making me feel both sad and angry or something that completely doesn't go together, you know, like maybe I feel happy uh, or proud of something, but I also feel guilty mm-hmm. and you're not going to convince me that I shouldn't feel that or think that. And even if the reality doesn't fit it, like, why are you guilty? You, you did this wonderful thing objectively you shouldn't but that's okay because my imagination has this other feeling about it so so safety i think is also about presence but also someone who is you know the reality side of it is someone who can be discriminating and say i think i see what it is you're trying to get at and and helps us to pinpoint and zero in because some of our best friends help us to zero in on what's the heart of the matter and hopefully if we're lucky they do it in a way that makes us feel like you get me and doesn't make me feel put down or made me feel lesser because I've put that out there. Amazing. So yeah, so it's an element of creating the potential for that, that potential space to be entered. And then also being discerning and pointing out things. So there's a combination. It's not just, it's not just, Oh, I love you. Therefore we're good. Yeah. There's a, there's a next level and an active, an active, you know, engagement. Yeah. It's so funny because sometimes people tell me as a therapist, one of the things they find cool um, is that, you know, at other, sometimes they say in my therapy history, like I went to a therapist and they were really great. Like they would really listen and I felt really understood and they would like mirror back what I was saying, but then they didn't always zero in. I didn't know what to do with all they agreed with or anything that maybe they didn't fully agree with. And then they're like, but then I went to this other therapist and they were really great because they could zero in on this and that, but they didn't really listen to other stuff that didn't fit in with that. Mm. And so I think it's sort of the balancing of both is when we're most integrated. And I think, you know, all of us do do well when we're discerning and receptive. And, you know, I, I joke around that it's, there's a difference between being discriminating and discriminatory, right? Discriminating means we can like, 
figure out this versus that. And it's not like discriminatory in that we're doing something that's judgmental. Discriminating still is just trying to understand, hey, that's this kind of screwdriver. That's this kind of wrench. Mm-hmm. Like that's just discriminating, but that's not discriminatory. Cause sometimes people get cagey, right? I don't want to get too, you know, and the other thing is that there's interplay in us d- d- discussing things. And so therefore then we could be like, wait, my sense of it was that you were saying this, what's your sense of it. And that's when we like sort of, it's almost a little bit more like jazz where you're kind of creating a melodic statement and then you're having, am I getting your melodic statement right? And then you play it back and say, no, actually you missed this part of the lick. And then you go back and forth. So as a, as a therapist, and I'm someone who I'm interested in therapy as a career and I'm kind of, I'm doing like prereqs again. Mm-hmm. So if, if there has to be that balance between presence and insight, yeah. where does the training come in? Is it, is it, you know, cause that insight, I would have to imagine is hard to teach. That's, yeah. that's a bit of a gift maybe, or it's a, it's a bit more of that right brain, you know, connecting. So where would you say the elements come into compare as far as the actual training and the theoretical background and knowing the data and then the actual, you know, the, the magic. (laughs) That's great. No, that's a great question. Uh, You know, sometimes I think of, I call it therapeutic presence on the one hand and therapeutic authority on the other, right. Which, and, and, and therapeutic presence tends to be more right brained, right. And, and therapeutic authority, like, Ooh, I'm discriminating. That's more left brain. I'm kind of analyzing stuff. And you know what? I actually think that it's almost like, like handedness. I think we're sort of like have a nature that prefers one or the other. Right. And some of it might be temperament or, or some of it might be just leaning and some of it might be a combination of experiences. So for example, when I started out as a therapist, I was very present. I could always do presence pretty well, but I wasn't good at authority. I didn't trust my instinct to say, this is what's happening. And I think this might be helpful. I was a little sheepish about that. Right. So I had to develop the other side and it was like developing my left hand as a pianist. Right. There are other people who start out and they're like more like, no, I like being able to set the agenda and I like going, <laughs> and I'm working for goals and that makes me feel good. But I also feel good at that. It's, it's a lot like a musician too. like, you know, a, a singer or a musician might come in and be really good at um, like they might have a really good like, let's say a singer has like it's a capacity to really belt <laughs> like maybe that's like their authority. They can really belt it, but maybe they're not as good as making some more dynamics between things and really listening to the band. Right. And so I think each, each person comes in with a certain kind of like baseline level of raw material, but then hopefully what training does is it evens not only evens them out, but it gets them better integrated. So then you can capitalize on both more fully together. And that's what a good musician does too. Like a good musician or a good actor or any good artist really tries to figure out how to get their technique to the level that they're combined with their own personality to bring it together to express something bigger. So it's not uncommon for people to feel underdeveloped in one facet or the other, whether it's authority or presence. Right, right. And actually on the the episode I heard you on, there was reference to that, especially at the beginning. And it makes total sense. You know, uh, a resident fresh out of medical school 
everyone knows they know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it makes sense. Yeah. It would be similar with a therapist. They, they need to develop the skill set and the confidence to, you know, they're, and they're not going to be the same practitioner 10 years down the line that they are the day they finish, you know, their master's program. And yeah, and you know what's weird too? Like, I think this is uh, just as doctors and, and as therapists and whatever profession, we, we sort of learn a lot and then we sort of have to unlearn quite a bit. Even, even Freud and Jung said that after they came out of medical school, they needed to unlearn a lot in order to become the kind of therapist that they meant to be. So I think it's also important to sort of take heart that don't think that you're supposed to have this all together, even when you've gotten the training. Because then you have to sort of tailor to figure out, wait, what's really right for how I work, right? So now, Thomas, you see that I like metaphor and, and I lean into that because that's the way that I think more fully and engage more. So instead, I, I used to try to pretend that away. I used to think, oh, I need to be more cognitive behavioral and think more logically. <laughs> and that just didn't work for me. I tried it mm -hmm. and I can do it, but I have to do it in the voice that's mine. So I think another thing it's about like, just like every artist, like every writer has to write in their own voice, but they want to sort of mimic some of the great writers to get a feel for what's possible. And so you're always coming back to the basics and the basics are listening and expressing, right? It's like a good musician is listening and then they're playing. And it's back and forth between those two things. And the better we get at listening, the better we get at playing. The better we get at playing, the better we get at listening. And so they feed each other back and forth. But it's your distinctive genre. I sometimes joke that being a therapist is like learning how to find your voice on that show, The Voice, you know, where like you're a contestant and you're like, <laughs> which, which, which genre are you really good at? Like, are you more like this kind of therapist, or more like that kind of therapist? And, and really getting to know the different theoretical orientations or other kinds of interventions is a way of getting more practice. But eventually, like you want to figure out what's the mix that's you. I love it. It makes, yeah, that's why jazz is the most superior genre of music also yeah <laughs> it's true i mean it's also true because if you think about jazz players too is that they master so many old standards but then you hear it and you're like oh my god that's definitely oscar peterson or like that's definitely bill evans or that's john coltrane or that's like you can hear the distinctive style um and the other thing is it's it's really an homage too like you know the other thing that i love about creative work whether it's in therapy or anything else, is that we're always paying tribute to the people who come before us and trying to find a way to reference them in a way that's like, thank you. Yeah. For sure. I love that. So earlier you mentioned this idea of the integrated man and the challenges associated with. Yeah. So I'd love to kind of learn more about that. So what do you mean by that term, the integrated man? Yeah. I mean, the integrated man, like, it, you know, it's, you know, here's the cool thing about us guys today. We've become a lot more emotionally intelligent. We've become more, a lot more emotionally available. And, you know, there's, there's a broadness in our capacity to imagine, you know, others, I think, than, than was in conventional masculinity or traditional masculinity, <laughs> which is, which is really cool. It's really, really cool. And, and, you know, traditional masculinity has its values too of like sort of valor and strength and wisdom. All of the wisdom traditions come from that too. Like Odysseus was a resourceful, brave, valiant warrior. He also cried a whole hell of a lot when he lost his men and he missed his family. He was a really fully, fully fashioned creature. Um, 
But I think, you know, at the same time, it's complicated because I think sometimes also what I've noticed about millennial men, especially and, and Gen Z men, is that they get a little cagey around how to own their authority, like how to own your center without being, let's say, oppressive to anybody or, you know, wanting to be able to hold your power in a way that's responsible and enlightened. And yet sometimes that's not as clean to integrate as we'd all wish it to be. And so then even in talking about it, people can feel guilty or sheepish of like, oh my God, I don't want to sound like that kind of guy, or I don't want to be that kind of person. And yet I think it's a struggle for all of us. I think men and women actually struggle with bringing those different elements of the self together. And I think sometimes even in our culture, not only men, but I think even women don't understand how much more complex and challenging it is to be a man today even though there are some wonderful opportunities for us to be, I think, much more integrated than we've ever been. Totally. And it also gets into that kind of, I think the sheepishness may come from, especially for, for us white guys, mm-hmm. you know, to not be tone deaf, you yeah. know, and, and with all these privileges associated with the society we live in, you know, I think for, for myself, I can totally identify with that. You know, who who am I to complain about this? You know, but right. I think it it matters, and creating that space is it matters because at the end of the day, you know, everyone deserves to feel seen and heard, and everyone deserves to have their realness acknowledged, right? Yeah. And the universe of possibilities and challenges that exist inside of them to see that have that be validated yeah so yeah i I think it it's you know in this program too there's a lot of that get started because there you know in 2020 after george floyd was murdered i was like okay what do i have access to i have access to a bunch of white people i grew up with i have a voice i'm okay I, i can talk about challenging things so let's let's create this program and and try to change, you know, the conversation. Yeah. So, but at the same time, there's also, I feel like, you know, with the way the politicization of these kind of topics also has gone is that maybe people can't feel like they can talk about it or, or, or get help when they need it. So yeah, it definitely is, especially when you bring in the, the other kind of identity markers, it kind of makes things complicated. And I love what you said, too, about, you know, privilege. I think we want to acknowledge our, our privilege and also, you know, be, be mindful of being possibly tone deaf, but also recognize what we can do with that privilege. Um, and also recognize, you know, that even underneath privilege, there's a more complex story. You know, um, I think one of the things that we forget in our culture sometimes is that there's a lot of diversity from the inside out. And, and that's the funny thing about how we're psychologically built. We have these many different facets of self, many different sides of self. And there's a lot more nuance there. And I think, you know, seeking out nuance in others and ourselves and helping to celebrate and open that up is, is really a, like a great counterbalance to being tone deaf. Because I think it's harder to be tone deaf when we're really open. Right now, there might be some moments when we might seem temporarily tone deaf, like, let's say, in a session as we're trying to understand something Mm. because we all are limited. And that's the other thing that I think is funny, because I think sometimes people think that people with privilege versus people with privilege don't have those challenges. I think everybody has those challenges 
of like, oh, these are sides that I don't know if I'd be as proud of sharing on social media or something that that are that are in me. And I think actually we do better to be able to give those voices and to, to figure out what we can make of them and make from them. And so I think also sometimes getting in the, in the mud and the dirt of that in a sort of responsible way is really, really cool. And, and so there is something about this interesting balancing act of figuring out how to do that. And that's why I said the difference between discriminating and discriminatory, right? Sometimes in order to be discriminating, we just have to figure out what's what more clearly, but that doesn't mean we're staying with that. It's a part that we might be integrating. So in other words, it might be helpful for some sort of for a guy to be able to incorporate a certain authority and it might feel to them that it's being more assertive or more aggressive and they're worried about it, but it, it, it's a part of the process and it might not be like you're going to be ending up like an exaggerated version of this quality. And so I think another way, another way, here's an analogy for you, Thomas, because I know it'd be easier to see it. Mm-hmm. Like imagine if like we're looking at ourselves as a kind of like track that we're working on in the studio. Like when you come to therapy, it's like you're going in, into the, the mixing room and sort of making sure all the levels are, are, are at like at the right place and looking at the nuance. But if you just said, no, you can't touch that level. You're, you're not going to be able to see the richness of it. So I think, you know, like one of those places, one of the things I think about therapy that's so nice is that it's a really safe space to really talk about everything and everything including the things we are not supposed to talk about, including the things that we might not love about ourselves or love about others. But that doesn't mean that we're staying there because we're dynamic creatures. And when we can bring those in, we can actually make something more creative out of them. Totally. And also kind of, it's the analogy of shedding light on the dark spaces, right? Yeah. And that matters because whether or not people want to talk about it, if it's there, it's there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's there for and it's there for all of us. You know, that's the mm-hmm. cool thing. It doesn't matter if you're a guy, if, if you're a man or a woman, or if you're straight or you're gay, it doesn't matter. All of these sides are there for for us. And in Jung said something really interesting. He said something to the effect that the it's the more that we try to repress those sides, the more they active they are they're active and we act them out. So it's actually wiser to actually be in touch with the sides that are darker because they often, you know, we're seeing a lot of work actually in, in like the influencers out there, like Daniel Pink or Susan Kane and Brene Brown. All, mm. all of these people are writing about the, the power of leaning into our negative emotions and getting to understand what, what service they have for deepening something about knowing ourselves or being more creative or being more connected. And so I think what you said, like this dark material there's a lot of gold in it, you know, and, and part of the process is figuring out how to take, even like what you said about like, listen, you took out of something out of an adverse situation, we could take from adverse situation, something that we can make out of it. And that's where, that's how it connects back to creativity. Hmm. Creativity always, always finds a way to represent darkness in a way that adds some light and complexity to it. It humanizes it. It humanizes it. Totally. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Because a lot of great pieces of art are dark, you know, and that's, that's part of it. Um, So, so when it comes to this idea of owning a man, owning their power, I think that's a really good one to define too, because 
it speaks to the balance, right? Because nobody nobody wants you know mansplaining, for example. That's right. That's an embodiment of you know a really annoying, <laughs> yeah, and uh, unhelpful you know way of of, of uh, interacting. But also, the, you mentioned this idea of owning one's power. So, what what does that mean, and how do you how do you help you know your patients get there? Yeah, I mean, I think you know you make a really good point. There's there's a difference between owning one's power as authority versus being authoritarian about it, right? Like the mm-hmm. the mansplaining or anything that that goes in that direction gets more like patronizing, right? That's where that word comes from patronizing and, and, and sort of has a father in that word, you know, it's, it's (laughs) not the father figure. That's the sort of wise I'm sort of here as counsel and I have something discriminating to share, right? Like I know this is going to be a strange analogy, but Yoda is a great father figure in a way, (laughs) right? Because he's wise but he's not mansplaining at all. He's just trying to say, listen, this is how the force works and this is how the universe works and you can hopefully take from it, but I'm not going to force it on you, right? And so I think there's a way and when when we kind of come to to a sense of wisdom or discriminating capacity, we want to share it, but we also do best to model it, right? And I think also some of the best leaders, whether they're men or women, embody and show how to mobilize that power in service of something greater than the self. And, and I think that's a power and that's an authority that's combined with empathy and authority and empathy or authority and service of something that's creating a greater sense of justice or a greater sense of compassion. That is a much more evolved, enlightened kind of power Um, but again, sometimes when we're starting to learn, it's like learning how to use a sword, right? Like a samurai training, right? Like they trained, (laughs) like essentially to make the sword, but then they're trained to fight responsibly with it because that sword is really dangerous. And so I think sometimes we forget that psychologically we need training in using this power. And even initially, if it comes out in a way that's not fully tempered, that's okay. And so we need to give each other, we need to give ourselves growing room. And we need to like hope others understand that this is part of a growing process. Right. And we see this with children. Like I have a four-year-old son and, you know, I see him getting excited about his capacity to do things and say things and, and, you know, even his own strength. And, and I think there's something about like supporting the healthy enthusiasm of wanting to have confidence in his own, you know, mastery and his own command of his language, of, of his strength, of all that stuff but also wanting to shape it with emotional intelligence and to use it responsibly. But I don't get upset if he like gets a little rambunctious because he's, he's trying to figure it out. I I, I want to kind of model to him how he can marshal that or, or how to help him to harness that until it gets more put together. And I think as, as men, sometimes we might not have always had the space to do that in a way that we could not only gradually bring it together, but bring it together in a way where we also didn't get sort of um, haunted by, oh, oh my God, I'm being that kind of guy that I didn't wish to be. Absolutely. Yes, I think some examples of kind of where that could show up is like um, a small team environment where someone needs to organize or say, 
we know what the goal is. We don't know how to get there yet. I'm going to throw out some ideas. You know, that's a leadership moment. And it doesn't have to be, like you said, a, a authoritarian. But it's kind of, in my life, I, you know, in those spaces, identifying where something needs to change or something needs to happen to catalyze us to get where we want to go, or whether it's in the family group, uh, friends, a sports team, you know, so I guess just trying to kind of define what that, what those like moments of seizing or kind of uh, accepting authority, you know, authority roles would look like. Yeah, I want to talk about somebody. I thought, tell me if you, I think it'd be interesting to talk about Vladimir Zelensky for a moment. Oh yeah, what a ledge, yeah. Because I think he's a great example and he's an exennial like myself. And I think <laughs> us exennials, like he has this great notion of bringing together the best of traditional masculinity and modern masculinity, mm. right? Traditional masculinity of saying, listen, I'm going to be in a military fatigue to show you that I'm strong with you in protecting our country and I'm not leaving. And I, you know, like I don't need ammunition. I, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. But then there's the other side of him. Same thing is I'm going to visit all, I'm going to visit soldiers in the hospital, give them medals for their bravery, but also I'm going to be here for you and empathically show you that I'm still here and I'm still available. That's an emotional thing. That's an empathic thing. And that's using authority. And also using this, this sort of receptivity of imagining emotionally what it must feel like to be a mother, father, daughter, son in this particular moment right now. And I think that's a really amazingly integrated form because he's both being that traditional, strong, protective warrior, but also that more modern, I am a peace-loving emotionally intelligent, hopeful for diplomacy, you know, ready to console and comfort and be here on all those other levels, which we actually see in another exennial leader, um, a female leader from New Zealand, the prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, did the same thing during the COVID pandemic. I mean, she was brilliant in shutting down her country very early and also making sure that protocols were in place. And then hopping on a Zoom speech in her sweats after putting her little girl to bed, I think a little, little son or a little girl, and, and basically then telling everybody we're in this together. So I think you actually see the, the integrated sense in both, um, in both women and men. You see that authority and how it's brought together. And that's what Jung was talking about of the yin and yang. The yin and yang in, in men and women is a beautiful thing to bring together. And I think sometimes we don't think about how those can be integrated that way, but I think we're seeing it right before our very eyes. Great examples. Yeah. And I was going to say also that, and you hit it right in the head because the advantage of the new age is that, you know, it brings these challenges, right. Of how do we integrate as men? How do we own being masculine and more, visibly feminine right but at the same time it then opens up the room for anyone all genders mm-hmm. to then also be leaders because everyone is kind of moving past this idea that only men the old the strong man model of, of leadership is the only way that's no that's largely i would say dismissed you know 
at this point. Maybe it's just the circles I run in, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And and I think you're right that, that it also, and I think that's the other thing is that I think this is a more human thing that our best, our best human capacities our most creative capacities are when we bring together this discriminating capacity that we have um, with this emotionally connected, empathic capacity that we have. And I think when we bring those together, we really transcend something and we really transform something. And so I think leaders who mobilize that of any gender are doing something amazing for the culture. Well it, also takes, it also takes nuance, I think. And I think we're, we're a culture that can get like tripped up with polarization and, and also sort of kind of focusing on small facets and magnifying them in on both sides of the aisle. Like, you know, it doesn't matter which political side of the spectrum you're on. It can be done on either side or both sides all the time. And I think that's where we want to remember that while women said, I, I, you know, do I contradict myself? I am large. I contain multitudes. We all contain multitudes and we do better to try and be more honest about those multitudes rather than trying to make it seem like we're either, you know, grand in this way or, or completely, you know, in, in another direction we, we, we all, we really need to kind of take the full measure and also uh, like have more um, decency with each other about the, our fullness. Cause it's mm-hmm. not easy being fully human. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And what I'm promoting, you know, and I will say, what I would say what we're, we're both promoting, right. Is just this integrated man, this integrated person and kind of shedding the light on the things we don't want to acknowledge about ourselves and <clears throat> digging up the dirt a bit. So it settles down more peacefully. But with that, there comes, challenging moments, you know, and, and it's that giving, giving people. So I guess to bring it back to real life with myself would be like, let's say I want to promote these conversations with my friends mm-hmm. and we have these conversations, but there, there can be some ugly moments or in the process, I also see a bad side of them. It would be hypocritical of me to then just completely be like, you suck. Like, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, judge, yeah. judge. You're out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, and because you're, you're right, like you know, we we all could see different facets of each other that maybe are less savory or less, you know, less resonant for ourselves. I mean, I think that's something of old school politics that used to be interesting too. That it must used to be much more common that you could have people from different sides of the aisle that could completely dif- disagree on policy issues, but were extraordinarily gracious and and you know decent with each other. And I think that's something that we also stand to remember um, that, you know, there was a great psychologist who said, we are all simply much more human than otherwise. And, you know, we do well to remember that. And it's still okay for us to have our point of view or even have our misgivings. And, um, but also I I was reading something else that, you know, it's, it's really interesting also to understand. I think curiosity helps us. You know, you can have people say to you things that are really maybe offensive or, or, or questionable or things, but when you get, have more curiosity and you get more layers of the story, not only does it contextualize it, but you start to have a lot more empathy for them. And empathy, by the way, doesn't mean you endorse a position. It means you can imagine 
what that position is and why a person goes there. And I think that's a really important distinction that we need to make is that empathy is not endorsement, but empathy is extraordinarily powerful and it can bridge us over divides quite well. Mm. Love it. Love it, man. One thing I'll, I want to ask you about too, before we jump over to the, the three things game, something I've been, um, contemplating. So these, these ideas of like, say like anti-racist theory, Mm -hmm. because they are, or they can be reductive, I would say. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's something I'm grappling with as someone who I acknowledge this power I have, but I guess I'm kind of, or not power, uh, privilege, excuse me, which are, I guess the same thing, but you know, it's, 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 uh, like the the idea that you know, let's say like I have a group of friends who are not not necessarily interested in that and don't want uh, white people who don't you know want to actively create a change. So then, are they then by association, if they're not part of the solution, part of a problem? Am I part of the problem if I'm not actively part of a solution? You know, and and the the answer would be yes. You know, according to many of the ideas, right? right. And it's also something I agree with in in, in a certain way. But then also at the same time, it's kind of reductive, right? And it's kind of yeah, complete. These ideas of, of layers and nuance that we're talking about are kind of lost. So I'll, yeah, yeah, more of a personal question, but I'm curious to no, get your. Really, that's a really really good question. And I was thinking as you said it, I think one of the reasons that's hard is because you know Nelson Mandela wouldn't have practiced like that, right? Gandhi wouldn't have practiced like that. Like they were, they were both figures who were interestingly enough, had even decency and empathy for people who completely disagreed with them. And actually that's eventually how they won them over. And, and I think another facet that makes it tricky is because I think perfection is not what we're after psychologically in any realm whether it's in political ideology, but also just in our personal well-being. And I think sometimes, not like this anti-racist kind of, let's say, ideology, sometimes those things can get blurred together with a sort of perfectionism. Like if there's even a drop of this in you, ironically enough, then you're not with us. And I just think that's such a very, very high standard. And I think what it actually does is I think it reenacts the sort of trauma of this superiority inferiority thing. And I think polarization does that. So I have this idea that in polarization, like basically, you know, it's I'm either completely right and you're completely wrong or we don't, we don't talk, you know, and, and, but when we, and then we get to the point of your second, the second point of polarization or the second point of healing polarization is when you discover if, if I'm not part of the solution, I'm part of the problem. That's, but we're both part of the problem. <laughs> Empathy right. requires that we be mutual in understanding. Hey, wait, you have a really good point about how racism has affected lots of people in this country and how it's been endemic to the history and all that totally right on. And yet you also have to empathically imagine what it's like to people who did not participate in that, or even who did of what it's like to have to imagine themselves or being part of that and how you can understand how that impacts them too. That's a more mutual perspective. Now that's not easy. And so I think of it like with polarization of like, if we can both be somewhat part of the problem, 
and be part of the solution, we're in a better place. And I figure it, it's more like when we hit those places, it's like we found a torn treasure map. And our goal is to put the treasure map together. We both have the solution, but we both have the problem that we don't have the full picture. That's not perfectionistic. That's human. And I think, you know, to resolve polarization, we need to move in those directions to have a little bit more humility. That, that doesn't mean that we don't still stand strong in our ideas, but it also means that we're not so over the top idealistic about it, that it means that we only accept perfection. And then I think what happens is then we sometimes discover new things together. Like there are wonderful moments where people who come from polarizing sides that they realize, wait, we actually have more in common than we realized. And then all of a sudden, I mean, this happens in therapy all the time. Somebody comes into therapy and you think, oh my God, I'm going to hate this person. They have completely different political views, <laughs> or completely different views about the world. And it turns out when you understand them more and you understand where they're coming from and why, you actually realize you have much more in common and much more humanity that you can share than you thought. And I think what we want is more contact and more, um, uh, not only understanding, but more experiences of getting to know the fuller nuances of people. And, and so I think if we go into a sense of like, if you're not fully with us and you're against us in, in, in those things, I think it gets into some dangerous territory because, because to be human is to have a lot more dimension. And the other thing is, I don't think anybody likes to be forced, by the way. Totally. So it's, so it's all, and the, so that's the other reason. And by the way, you know, you can see this with your partner when you try and force your idea onto your partner, even if you think it's the perfect choice, <laughs> if they think that you don't understand where they're coming from. So I think it's more about actually a democratic process of having a dialogue and conversation amongst equals. And, and I think that brings out the best in us. And yeah, it might feel a little bit difficult because we have to go to places that are difficult, but that's okay. Totally. Uh, yeah. Again, well said. And I think the good thing <laughs> for us, you know, as like white guys is that there's so many tangible things we can do mm-hmm. on the road to being an ally. Yeah. You know, as far as education or promoting these conversations amongst our peers where other, you know, say like our, our friends of color don't have access to these circles that we have access to driving the conversation and doing something tangible like, okay, let's say there was um, discriminatory policing practices in my community. Like someone can go out there and do something. Like there's so many other tangible things that we can do well short of just (laughs) writing off everyone we know, you know? Yeah. And again, that's where you mobilize what we have. And I think we also, you know, mobilize what we, what we have and and what's our access. And also, I think we also want to not, not just win over, but get to make connections so that we, I think also we want to sort of, in a helpful way, complexify the picture, make more nuance. Because when you get closer to human beings, you know, um, like like at close range, in other words, there's there's so much more subtlety. And I think, you know, perfectionism, whether someone is perfectionistic about their academic achievement or their work, you know, achievement or their political ideology it gets into trickier territory because there's not a lot of nuance allowed there. I love it. Okay. Three things game time. Let's do it. Uh, whoever's birthday is cut sooner goes first. So what month is your birthday? July. Okay. That'll be you. I'm August. 
Okay. okay. Here's your cue. What are three lessons your father taught you? Good one. Mm-hmm. This is for you. Oh, this is for me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, three lessons that my father taught me. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I, I think my dad taught me one thing is that when you can be really discriminating and, and see through a lot of different areas, you can make more connections. You know, that, that, that can be a real strength. There's the other thing my dad taught me is there's a lot of power in humor. Nice. There's a lot of power in humor. And the third thing that my dad taught me is that dogs are the most unconditional creatures in the world. And we should learn how to, to be more like them. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love dogs too. Okay. Three things I've learned from making mistakes is my question. How to apologize. When to take calculated risks. Nice. And <laughs> what not to do again would be number three. <laughs> After you've apologized. I like After you apologize. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good insurance policy. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. Elsie, thank you so much for, for your time. It's an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And I, I feel like we could keep going. There's so many other things i'd love to talk to you about but yeah thank you so much thank you for having me this has been great for sure where can the folks find your work if they want to connect with you or read up on your you know your writing and and yeah so you can find me on my website michaelalsey.com um or you can find my psychology today blog which is called live life creatively and if you're a therapist i'm coming out with a new book from norton called therapeutic improvisation how to stop winging it and own it as a therapist so nice Let's go. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. Have a a wonderful day. You too, my friend.